Have you ever felt a twinge of worry about AI taking over your job or diluting your creativity? Well, what if you could turn that fear into creative fuel? We've just published an amazing new ebook called The Four Keys to Success in an AI World. And this is more than just a guide. It's a deep exploration into the human skills that AI can't touch. The skills that are essential for standing out and thriving, no matter how much technology evolved. We're talking about real differentiators here, like creativity, emotional intelligence, critical thinking, and much more. Inside, you'll find actionable insights and strategies to develop these skills, whether you're a creative person, a business person, or just simply someone who loves personal development. This isn't a story about tech taking over. It's a story of human creativity thriving alongside AI. Picture this, AI as your creative co-pilot, not just as a tool, but a collaborator that enhances your unique human skills. The Four Keys ebook will show you exactly how to do that and view AI in a new way that empowers you instead of overshadows you. Transform your creative potential today. Head over to unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys. Use the number four, K-E-Y-S. That's unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys and download your free copy. Uh, leading creative work is unlike any other kind of leadership. And you could say, well, yeah, but you know, sales is creative. Yeah, it's creative, but it's also much easier to quantify, right? You can, it's very easy to tell whether you're doing well or you're not doing well. All you have to do is look at the numbers. Did we make sales or did we not? And yes, it's a creative act, but it's different from leading creative work. And I'm talking about something like design or videography or production, you know, or films or something like that. It's just a fundamentally different kind of work leading uh, creative work because essentially we're trying to organize something that doesn't want to be organized. And, you know, that's, and so it's, it's really, really difficult. You know, you can, you can develop the best systems in the world, but if the right idea doesn't come at the right time. It's not, it doesn't, doesn't matter. The work's going to be subpar and we can't control the creative process, but we can create an environment in which creative people are likely to thrive. And we can create an environment in which talented people want to stick around. They want to produce, they want to work for you. And so I always tell people, listen, I want to help you be the leader you always wish you'd had. <laughs> you know, that's the thing. Like, I, I want to make sure that you become the leader that 10 years from now, when somebody's saying, hey, think of a leader that really impacted your life. You're the leader that, that they think of because you created a, a fertile field in which they could thrive. I'm Srini Rao, and this is the Unmistakable Creative Podcast, where you get a window into the stories and insights of the most innovative and creative minds who've started movements, built thriving businesses, written best-selling books, and created insanely interesting art. For more, check out our 500-episode archive at unmistakablecreative.com. One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a t-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss plushcare.com slash weight loss. Wow. 
Nice. Yeah. What you're hearing are the sounds of people everywhere putting on Bomba socks, underwear, and T-shirts made from absurdly soft materials that feel like plush clouds. Yeah, that plush. And the best part? For every item you purchase, Bombas donates another to someone facing homelessness. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST. Code ACAST. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. Like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Life is full of what ifs. Some awesome. Like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome. Like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out-of-pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what-ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. As creators, we're always on the move. Whether it's a live podcast event, a pop-up shop, or a workshop, we're constantly interacting with community, and that's where Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe comes in. Imagine this. You're at a live event, a listener loves your merch, or a participant wants to sign up for your course on the spot. With Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe, you can accept their payments right there and then, right from your iPhone so there's no extra hardware or no delays. Total game changer. It's not just for creators. Any business owner can do this. It's about making transactions smoother and much more personal, growing your business in your way. We've been using Stripe for our products and courses for a long time, and now with Tap to Pay on iPhone, you can take your business to the next level too. So visit stripe.com slash tap iPhone to learn more. Remember folks, with Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe, your business is always at your fingertips. Todd, welcome to The Unmistakable Creative. Thanks so much for taking the time to join us. Srini, it is a great joy. As you know, it's a great joy for me to be back here. So thanks for having me. Yeah, it is my pleasure to have you back here. So, you know, we've had you on the show, I think probably at this point, you may be one of the handful of guests that has appeared probably, uh, you know, four times, if, if not three. And of course, that, you know, speaks volumes about the fact that you've built a, a prolific creative career, which I do want to spend some time talking about. But before we get into that, I want to start by asking you, what social group were you a part of in high school? And what impact did that end up having on your life and your career? <laughs> by social group, what what do you mean by social group? Nerds, jocks, you know, popular people. Like, who did you hang out with in high school? You know, okay, this is this is you? okay. So this is a really interesting thing because I wasn't really a part of any social group. Like, I played basketball and actually was like pretty good at basketball, but I wasn't really a jock. I didn't really ha- really hang out with the jocks, and um, like I was in student government, but I wasn't really like one of those people. And I, you know, I got pretty good grades, but I wasn't like with the nerds. I, honestly, I kind of felt like an outcast mm-hmm. a lot of time in 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 high school, and um, some of it was I didn't feel like I really fit 
anywhere. You know, I was kind of, I was comfortable in all of those groups, but I didn't really feel, feel like I fit in any one of those groups. And so, um, I think in some ways you ask how that impacted me. I think in some ways, um, that kind of affected my, my social perception when I went into college and when I got out of college and entered the workforce, I think I always kind of felt like everybody else knew a secret that I didn't know. I felt like I didn't understand how to crack the code of whatever group I was trying to infiltrate. Um, but in some ways, I think that probably helped me in, in in tremendous ways because I don't think I really settled into a mold. And from a from a creative standpoint, I think the ability to kind of be fluid and kind of go with the flow of whatever group I was I was in at the time, but not really ever feel like I was kind of settled in. Never really felt like I was a part of that group per se. I think has really helped me to be able to translate ideas and communicate to different groups of people in in ways that honestly are it's helping me now. You know. It's like go into like, you know, if I go into a healthcare company, I can sort of take these ideas and kind of translate them in a way that'll, that'll fit that group. Or if I'm speaking to a creative agency, I can take the exact same ideas, but translate it in a way that will communicate to that group. So I think while it was kind of maybe a little bit painful at the time, um, I think it probably has helped me quite a bit in my career. Yeah, you know, I think you and I share that in common um, in terms of being an outcast. I, I think the one difference is you probably haven't been fired from every job you've been at. Um, <laughs> but that sense of, of being an outcast um, in you know a typical environment, I don't imagine that there aren't tons of people who are listening to this who feel that. And I'm curious how you would guide them in terms of resolving that feeling and you know finding how they can best express themselves creatively in whatever environment they're in. Yeah, so I, I would say, um, you know, I, I don't like the word outcast because it, it, I think it, um, in some ways, it kind of uh, implies that people are tossing you to the side. They don't see value in you. Um, I think that that perception of outcast is probably more of a first person perception than it is a, a societal perception, right? Um, I think it's something we feel, but it's not necessarily something that other people are. Um, intentionally acting out. And so I think we have to be very careful not to ascribe motives to other people um, in, in that way. And so, for example, in, in my situation, I wouldn't have considered myself an outcast. I just didn't really feel like I fit anywhere necessarily. You know, like I never really fit with the, the jocks when I was playing basketball. I never really fit with the straight A students when I was in school. You know, all of these things, like I never really felt personally like I fit. And I think for me, one of the things that I came to realization of pretty early in my career is that everybody else feels the exact same way that I do. Um, everybody else thinks that that the other people have it figured out. You know, people, everyone feels like everyone else is in on a secret that you, for some reason, aren't in on. And once I realized that that really wasn't the case, that it wasn't the case that everybody else knows some secret that I don't know or that everybody else has it figured out and I'm the one trying to crack the code, it really released the pressure valve. Because uh, for me, that became a, a sort of a more holistic understanding that we're all trying to figure this out as we go. And even, and frankly, now, uh, you know, getting the chance to sit down with some industry leading executives and some of the top creatives in the world and people who are like, you know, even household names in some circumstances um, and hearing them talk about how they feel the exact same way. You know, I'm just kind of making it up as I go. I, honestly, I'm sort of afraid it's all going to fall apart at any minute. I mean, it's, it's funny when you really get highly successful people talking, the kinds of things that they'll say that sound exactly like like what I might have said in high school or what I might might have said you know, two years ago or even now, where it feels like I'm kind of making it up as I go and I'm kind of weaving together opportunities as I go. So I think just realizing that we're all in many ways in that same boat and that nobody has it figured 
figured out and that we're all trying to figure it out as we go. Um, I think that releases a lot of the pressure that we put on ourselves as creatives to have the answer or as business people to have the answer, to know exactly what we're doing. And, you know, the other thing is, I think, um, along those same lines, success comes in layers. And this is something that took me a while to figure out that, you know, we tend to think of success in terms of breakthrough moments. So I work, work, work. Oh, I have a breakthrough moment. And now all of a sudden I go to the next plateau. That's not really the way it works. It's really more like layer upon layer upon layer upon layer. And as you accumulate those layers of experience and success and highs and lows and all of that, you become more resilient and you begin to understand, um, you you begin to develop almost an intuition for what it takes to succeed. And it, it really is more of a matter of um, persistence over time rather than looking for those breakthrough moments. And yes, you know, things like having a breakthrough moment, things like, you know, scoring a big deal, getting a big promotion, those are important moments in your life. But that's just one, that's just the, that's like getting to the starting line of a race, right? Mm -hmm. (laughs) Congratulations. Now you're at the start, you're at a brand new starting line. You have to start all over again. Um, And so the more you realize that no one thing is going to make or break your career, it, it also releases a bit of the pressure and you realize, oh, now this is a new opportunity. Now I'm back at the starting line. I get to you know, kind of get to start all over again and, and start working my way toward whatever my objective is. You know, it's interesting. I think that that applies to, to life at large, right? Like we go into social interactions thinking that this is like a make or break moment and it, it has to go perfectly. And of course, that pretty much makes it not go perfectly. Um, right. you know, I'm really glad, glad you brought up sort of persistence over time because I think that your, you know, your career and, and your body of work is really exemplary of that. It's something that I've always sort of I've looked up to. In fact, you know, I just said if, if I could model myself off of one portfolio author, it would probably be you because of the oh, fact you. that you've done, you know, sort of sustained work over a, a long period of time. And, uh, you know, I appreciate what you said about sort of it's not about one moment because I distinctly remember uh, an email that you sent me um, while I was writing my first book about thinking about this, you know, in terms of the long game, not one book. Maybe you don't make the bestseller list. Maybe you don't sell a million copies on the first book, but you're thinking about this over the course of, you know, five years. And if I remember correctly, you told me that your first book sold, you know, an exorbitant number of copies, but it didn't happen instantly. It happened over the course of about five years. Um, So I'm I'm curious, you know, from your own perspective and your own experience, as well as some of these household names who are creatives, what have you seen that are the common patterns in terms of performance, attitude, mindset that lead to a sustained creative career? Um, One in which the work you end up creating is, you know, what Ryan Holiday would call perennial or timeless. Yeah, so so there are a couple of things that immediately come to mind, um, and and these are not going to be a secret right, to anyone uh, who is listening who's been doing this for any period of time. But the first one is that high performers and successful creatives have rituals where they go to work every single day. They wake up, they go to work, they get their work done, they focus on what they're working on, and they produce value every day. They don't wait to be inspired. And this is kind of you know we we've heard a lot about this, and Stephen Pressfield really elevated this conversation, I think, quite a bit. Um, about, you know, doing the work, about showing up, having a professional mindset, um, cranking out whatever it is you're cranking out every day. I mean, people, I, I have heard, I'm sure you have heard people over the course of years. So there's one, I mean, it's one person in particular, I'll just give you an example. A person um, back when I was writing The Accidental Creative was talking about a book that they were working on. I'm like, that's awesome. That's really great. Congratulations. Fantastic. I wrote and published The Accidental Creative, started writing Die Empty, my second book. Um, interacted with the same person again. Well, I'm still working on it. I'm almost there. I'm. That's great. Fantastic. You know, 
published Die Empty, wrote louder than words, you know, published louder than words, had an interaction with them, still working on the same book, you know, and it has now been what, eight years, almost nine years. This person's been working on the same book and that's fine. If that's what you want to do, that's great. I'm not judging that, but I think that to some degree we can tweak and perfect and try to get things just right forever and ever and never put anything out into the world. And we're not going to create impact if we take that approach. Um, professionals show up every day, they write, they, they um, produce value every single day and they recognize that things like books don't get written in a day or in a month. Nobody sits down to write a book. Nobody sits down to launch a business, right? You sit down and you do a little bit of work every single day and over the course of time it adds up into a substantial body of work. So that's that is really, I think, the, the number one lesson for anybody wanting to produce great work. And this is what I see in common with all of these people. They wake up every day asking, what is it? Gonna, what do I need to get done today to move me toward whatever it is I'm making, whatever it is I'm doing? So that's number one. Number two is they have a relentless focus on providing value to the people that they're serving. It's not about them. It's not about how can I convince people to give me money, which is what I think is what a lot of people start with, uh-huh. unfortunately. Um, instead, they focus on what can I produce that's going to be of value to other people and that's going to make their life better and that's going to serve them even if I never get any of the accolades even if I never get you know rich off of what I'm doing I just want to produce something that's going to be valuable to other people because I trust that if I produce enough things that are valuable to other people eventually I'm going to reap the financial returns the career returns all of that kind of stuff so my ethic for for a while now has been every day I want to wake up I want to make things I love for people who love them right like that's that's what I want to do. So when I'm writing a book, I'm thinking I want to make something. I want to write a book that I love for people who will love them. That's it. That's and if I do that, great. And you know what? If I if my career ends because I make things that I love for people who love them, but that market isn't big enough, I mean, so be it, right? But better that than crank out stuff that I hate over the course of you know decades um, just to keep money coming in. I mean, that's that's not a way to build a career. It's not a way to build a life, um, quite frankly. Because I'm going to look at my body of work at the end, and I'm going to say that's not reflective of me. It's not reflective of who I am or what I was capable of contributing. So, um, you know, I'm going to keep making things I love for people who love them for as long as people continue to support that and continue to interact with it and love it. And if it's some point people no longer care what I have to say, then I'm going to stop making things because why would I make things if nobody's going to listen or read them? Right. Mm-hmm. So, um, that's kind of been my, my, my mindset. And frankly, you know, we started the Axiom creative in 2005, the podcast in 2005, and I've been cranking out, you know, a podcast or two a week, every week for 12 years now. And people continue to listen and the audience continues to grow. Um, but I've always said the moment that people stop listening, I'm going to stop making podcasts because you know, what's the use in making something if people don't, if people don't love it, if they don't, you know, interact with it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you know, it, it's interesting because uh, I think you raise a, a really important question about, you know, what is, how do we define the creation of value? And then for so many people, it's like, well, if somebody doesn't give me money for this thing, it's not of any value. Um, right. And, you know, and this has really been the sort of central argument of, of my upcoming book was the notion of an audience of one, that if you are, you know, solely creating things for the idea that, okay, this needs to be, you know, created for an audience of millions and make me rich, you're kind of putting yourself at a huge disadvantage because that's right. Um, you're one, you're going to water down your work inevitably when you do that. 
Yeah, absolutely. Well, you know, if, again, if you talk to a lot of the brilliant creators, I mean, Stephen King's a great example of that, right? He writes for his ideal reader, which is one person, and he writes to one person. Um, I think we have to have our intended audience in mind. And, and so many people are thinking demographic or avatar or, you know, psychographic. You know, they're thinking about a group of people, but I've never found that terribly helpful. Whenever I write a book specifically, or when I put a talk together to, to deliver to an audience, I think of one person that I want to reach and, and not a group, not a, not a sort of a psychographic or an avatar. I think of a specific person I know, <laughs> a person I know who needs to hear what I have to say, whether it's in a book or whatever. And I write the entire book as if I am speaking to that person, mm-hmm. you know? And so each one of my books, and I will never reveal who they are, but each one of my books has been written to a specific person that I had in mind from the beginning of the project. And I wrote it as if when I was looking through the computer monitor, I was looking, you know, into the monitor to write. I was looking through it into their eyes and typing words that I thought they needed to hear at this point in time. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, because of that, I think that's why, you know, if I go out to speak in an event or whatever and people catch me in the hallway and they'll say, you know, um, I read your book, The Accidental Creative, or I read your book, Louder Than Words, or whatever it is. And they'll say, and it felt like you were watching me, like you were looking over my shoulder. You're describing my office, you know, like the exact way that we interact. And I'm like, well, it's because I was writing with precision. I was writing to one person that so many people can connect with it. If I tried to identify with a group, it's going to be, like you said, it's going to be watered down and it's not going to be precise enough to connect with anyone. So it's that old adage. If you try to reach everyone, you're going to reach no one. If you reach one person, you'll reach a lot of people. So I would encourage anybody who's launching a business or thinking about writing a book or creating anything to think about who is that one person that I want to connect with and then try with everything you've got to make your message or your art or your business or whatever crafted around that one person, reach that one person very precisely and specifically, and you will reach a bunch of people um, in return. Mm So one of the other thing that I, I personally am really curious about is I know that, you know, I think this is what book number four or five for you. And I'm curious how you how you come up with a topic for a book. Like, how do you decide, OK, I'm you know at a point where this message is strong enough that I think it needs to be written into a book. Like, how do you determine what that's going to be next for you after the one that oh, you finish? That's a great question. It's funny because um, if you read my books, there's usually one chapter that forms the basis of whatever the next book is. <laughs> so, for example, the very end of the book, The Accidental Creative, told the story of um, the encounter I had with the concept of Die Empty and why that became so important and informative to me. And then Die Empty became the next book, right? And then in Die Empty, there's an entire chapter about how do you find your voice? How do you counter fear and find your voice in the midst of of the work that you do. And that sort of one section from that chapter became the foundation for Louder Than Words. And then chapter seven of Louder Than Words is how do you help your team find its voice? How do you help your team sort of develop its own? And then this new book that I just wrote, Herding Tigers, is about how how do you be the leader that creative people need? How do you help creative people find their voice and give them a platform to succeed as a leader of teams? And typically within that, it's I'm I am learning something as I'm writing or I'm experiencing something as I'm 
I'm writing, as I'm interacting with people, I'm interviewing, I'm working, you know, with companies, because I'm constantly interacting with and working with leaders and companies um, through just the course of my of my work, right? As as um, sort of a consultant, a speaker, and all of those kinds of things, and doing workshops. So I'm always hearing what people are struggling with, and as I'm looking at patterns, you know, one of the things I've been hearing for years and years is, uh, you know, leaders don't understand what creative people need from them. <laughs> they don't understand why it is that you know creative people uh, get frustrated and throw up their hands, or why it seems like they're you know insecure, or why it, why it feels like they're sometimes leading with their ego, or why it feels like sometimes they're all about the idea, but they don't really see the strategy. Well, a lot of those things are symptoms of poor leadership. It's symptoms of creative people not getting what they need from their leaders, and so they're reacting. They're they're reacting against what's happening. And so as I was writing louder than words and I was writing this chapter on helping your team find its voice, I was learning all kinds of things and hearing all kinds of things as I've been doing for the last, you know, 10 years about some of the problems that creative people have with their leadership. And so that naturally translated into this new book, um, Herding Tigers. And, you know, that's kind of the way it's, that's kind of the way it's worked out for me. And I actually already have a concept for the next book in mind, um, that I've already been outlining and working on, um, that is again, sort of largely formed by some of the experiences I had writing this book. So I think if you, if you have your antenna up and you're looking for patterns and you're listening to learn and you're listening to internalize, you're listening with your full attention and curiosity and you're not just listening to fit pieces together into whatever you already wanted to write, mm. then it's amazing what you will hear. If you're talking to customers, if you're talking to uh, you know, people who are sort of in the group that you're trying to address or trying to reach, if you listen to learn and you listen with full curiosity, it's amazing the kind of stuff that you'll hear. And so that's really always been my ethic. You know, I, I never want to go into writing about something thinking that I know what I'm going to say. Mm. <laughs> I want to go in with, with a, a theory but I want to test that theory against what people say to me um, as I'm as I'm doing the research and I'm writing the book. And as I do that, I often find, wow, there is a there's too much to write about in one book. So there needs to be another book to address this other topic right. by itself. Yeah. Um, so I, I do want to get into hurting tigers. But before we do that, I want to ask you one question about resilience. Um, you know, because, you know, right before we hit record here, you mentioned that Louder Than Words didn't sell as well as uh, your other books. I'm curious, uh, you know, how do you develop resilience um, at low points in your career or points that seem like low points? I mean, for most people like, well, OK, it didn't sell as many copies, but you got to write a book. <laughs> you know? Right. Right. Sure. I mean, that that is totally a, you know, oh, woe is me. Pat myself on the back, you know, sort of, you know, oh, yeah, whine about that kind of moment. Right. Like uh, and it, I mean, by the way, it's still sold. I mean, it's still so well by by the standard of books. Right. Mm -hmm. But it didn't sell as well as the other books. Um, yeah. I mean, frankly, for me, it's all about the work. It's about getting back to work. Um, I immediately went back to writing another book. And I think that's all you can do. And and the same thing, by the way, applies to a smash hit. You go back and you just start writing again. You know, that's that's what you have to do if you want to. You know, you, you can never rest on your laurels. Um, you can never get to a point where you think, OK, well, now I can settle in. Now I can coast it out because the marketplace is too fickle and people are going to forget about you. You know, if you don't continue working, um, people are going to forget you're there. Mm -hmm. And so for me, it's just a matter of. Um, you know, continuing to show up every day, continuing to write my, my daily word count, continuing to work toward, um, you know, other projects, other things that I was working on at the time. And, um, you, you just keep your head in the game. Um, I, you know, I mentioned I played basketball in high school and, uh, you know, I remember 
that there were there were a couple of times when I would miss you know three or four shots early in a game, and I would I would just clam up and stop shooting because I thought you know well you know apparently I you know I don't want to let my team down or you know everybody's going to hate me if I keep missing shots and you know, the coach would get right in my face and say you have got to shoot the ball if you don't shoot the ball we're not going to score right and so for me like hey I, I missed a shot maybe with a book or you know for some people it's like oh I launched a product and it didn't it didn't hit um, yeah well you got to shoot the ball you have to take another shot you know if you don't take another shot then you don't there's guarantee you that if you don't take another shot then you're absolutely not going to succeed you're absolutely not going to score right um so you just got to get back in the game and you gotta you have to take another shot and so it's hard when you're talking about things like books because another shot for me meant two years of working on a book right so it's not i mean that's why it's so painful when something like a book or maybe for a musician like an album when it doesn't do well that's why it's painful it's not like the next day you just get up and like okay well i'll crank something else out you know like a blog post that didn't do well or something or a, a podcast episode so it's not like that. It's, um, you know, as you know, it's a very long process. And so when you work on something for two years and it doesn't hit the way that you think it's going to, um, and you have to ramp back up and do it again. Well, that's, you're basically committing 700 days of your life to writing something new with the hope that the next one will, you know, hit, will take off. Um, but you learn something every time, you know, and you, you learn, uh, what did resonate, what didn't resonate. Um, you know, and, uh, you know, I'd be happy to share some of that, what I learned from the last project, but you know, a lot of what we learned from the last project, we applied to this project. And I think it's, it's going to be better f- because of that. Yeah. Um, well, speaking of, of the, uh, this next project, let's get into it. Um, you know, what I'd love to do is, is go through sort of an entire overview and framework of, you know, how people actually become more effective creative leaders. Do you think you can kind of walk us through that from, you know, sort of mindset to actual tactical aspects of this? Sure. Okay. Absolutely. Cool. Yeah. So I I think the main thing that we have to understand uh, is that there are specific things that creative people need from their leadership. Uh, Leading creative work is unlike any other kind of leadership. And you could say, well, yeah, but, you know, sales is creative. Yeah, it's creative, but it's also much easier to quantify. Right. You can it's very easy to tell whether you're doing well or you're not doing well. You have to do is look at the numbers. Did we make sales or did we not? And yes, it's a creative act, but it's different from leading creative work and I'm talking about something like design or videography or production you know or films or something like that it's just a fundamentally different kind of work leading uh, creative work because essentially we're trying to organize something that doesn't want to be organized and you know that's and so it's it's really really difficult you know you can you can develop the best systems in the world but if the right idea doesn't come at the right time it's not it doesn't doesn't matter the work's going to be subpar and we can't control the creative process but we can create an environment in which creative people are likely to thrive and we can create an environment in which talented people want to stick around they want to produce they want to work for you. And so I always tell people, listen, I want to help you be the leader you always wish you'd had. <laughs> you know, that's the thing. Like, I, I want to make sure that you become the leader that 10 years from now, when somebody's saying, hey, think of a leader that really impacted your life, you're the leader that, that they think of because you created a, a fertile field in which they could thrive. And so that sort of raises the question of what is it that creative people need? And the two themes that 
have come up over the course of, of the last, really the last 10 years of research for me, but then you know, prior to that, 10 years of leading creative teams. So I spent a lot of time you know, working with creative people and trying to figure out what is it I need to do to provide um, the kinds of environment that they, environments that they need in order to be able to produce their best work. And so the two themes that continue to come up over and over, over the course of this were number one, stability, and number two, challenge. So creative people need stability, and stability is comprised of a couple of different things. You know, we, we, we tend to think that creative people want wide open playing fields, right? This is sort of the stereotype that we have about creative people. Don't fence me in, just let me, I wanna be all about the idea. Just give me a wide open field to play in. But that's not really true, and it's not really healthy. The reality is that creative people want boundaries. They crave boundaries. They need to understand where the perimeter is so that they can explore fully within that perimeter. But when you don't give them boundaries, they become insecure and they're insecure because they're not sure if they're spending their finite focus, assets, time and energy in a way that's meaningful or if they're going to get to the end of it and realize, oh, okay, this isn't really what you were looking for. You know, so they have to do a lot of rework. So, Within that realm of stability, they need two things. They need clarity from you, and clarity is about expectations, making sure they understand what you want from them, when you want it from them, and maybe even more specifically, what you don't want from them, right? So here's, and this is, um, you know, especially for people who are maybe new to the marketplace, this is an important thing that they need. They need to understand, you know, here's what I don't want you working on right now. You know, you're gonna be tempted to do this and this and this, and I've got a lot more experience, and I know that these are the kind of things you're going to be tempted to do. Don't do those things. Instead, I want you spending your finite focus, assets, time, and energy against these things. And here's when they're going to be due. And here's what my expectations are. And here's the strategy. And here's the very clear perimeter within which I want you to play with this. So that's the first part of stability is they need clarity from you. And the second thing is they need protection from you. And what does this mean? It means, you know, a lot of organizations are driven by the political wins. So maybe wins with a D, not wins as in, you know, yay, we won, but wins, right? And so when the political wind shifts, a lot of leaders shift with that political wind and they'll change their mind about an idea or a direction in order to cover their own rear at the expense of their team. So, for example, oh, we're going to work on a project for you know six months and the first three months we have a, a very clear direction that's been established. And then some senior leader of an organization comes in and, uh, and says, you know, oh, well, we're not going to do that anymore. We're going to do something else. And instead of saying, hey, let's talk about why we established this strategy. I'm going to provide cover for my team. I'm going to protect my team. I'm going to try to convince you that this is still the right direction. Instead, they say, okay, everybody, we're just going to rework everything we've been working on for the last three months right? or whatever it is because they haven't been getting buy-in along the way and articulating strategy and, and defending their team. Their team has to pay the price. So, the creative team needs stability, so they need clarity and they need protection from their leader, but they also need challenge, mm. right? Because if you have too much stability but not enough challenge, creative people are gonna get bored over time. And challenge is about permission. I am giving you permission to explore, to try new things, to experiment, to take risks, to develop yourself, to push into uncomfortable territory, to introduce ideas that might make us a little nervous. So I am giving you permission to do that. And also the second part of challenge is 
and I have faith in you. I see you, I believe you, I know you're capable, and I'm gonna continue to encourage you and coach you in the direction that I believe you need to go in order to be a better creative. So when you have a high level of stability and challenge, your team will thrive. When you have a high level of challenge and a low level of stability, your team is gonna get angry. And we see this in a lot of you know creative agencies where there's a ton of work and they're being pushed really hard, but the mindset is, well, listen, if we burn through people, there's a line out the door of people waiting to come take their job, so who cares, right? Well, that's a, that's a really naive mindset because it costs a lot more money to hire and train somebody than it does to retain them, you know, to keep great talent around. So we don't want that environment. And then of course, if you have a high degree of challenge, but a low degree, or a high degree of stability, but a low degree of challenge, people are gonna get bored because, mm-hmm. you know, that's basically basically a production shop. Creative people need to be challenged. They need to have something they're working against that makes them feel like they're exercising their potential. So what we want to do as leaders is focus on how do we create a stability, both of stability and challenge. It's kind of what we could almost call bounded autonomy, right? It's like um, freedom within boundaries. And as a leader, we have we have the unique ability to keep our finger on both of those dials for each individual, by the way, and to be able to sort of make sure that we're sort of tuning that in for them so that they have what they need in order to thrive. Mm-hmm. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Life is full of what ifs. Some awesome, like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome. Like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out of pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Since 2013, Bombas has donated over 100 million socks, underwear, and T-shirts to those facing homelessness. If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombas donates an item to someone who needs it. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great 
great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. As creators, we're always on the move. Whether it's a live podcast event, a pop-up shop, or a workshop, we're constantly interacting with community, and that's where Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe comes in. Imagine this, you're at a live event, a listener loves your merch, or a participant wants to sign up for your course on the spot. With Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe, you can accept their payments right there and then, right from your iPhone so there's no extra hardware or no delays. Total game changer. It's not just for creators. Any business owner can do this. It's about making transactions smoother and much more personal, growing your business in your way. We've been using Stripe for our products and courses for a long time, and now with Tap to Pay on iPhone, you can take your business to the next level too. So visit stripe.com slash tap iPhone to learn more. Remember folks, with Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe, your business is always at your fingertips. Wow. Um, so there are a couple of, of major shifts that you talk about, especially for, for creative leaders, particularly in part one of the book where you talk about making the shift from maker to manager, from equal to imbalance and from peer to coach. And I was wondering if you could expand on all of those and, and kind of break those down for us and what role they play in you know our ability to get work done. Yeah. So the maker to manager shift is a really important one. And I'm sure a lot of people listening probably have gone through this. Um, your, your entire career as a creative is one giant setup. It is like you are you are totally set up from the get go, because what you're told from the beginning is if you produce great work, if you control that work, if you make it what it needs to be and you deliver results to the client, then your career progress is going to track with the, the quality of the work that you produce. And so over time, we're trained that it's all about getting the work right and controlling the work and making it what it needs to be. So control becomes our main operating um, uh, mode, mode of operation as a creative pro. The problem is when we get to a point where we're promoted, you know, so we, we're really great as a creative, so we're promoted to the role of manager. If we maintain that control mindset, then our team will never develop its ability to do its own work. Our team will never grow beyond our own direct involvement in the work itself. So we have to move from a mindset of control to a mindset of influence. And this is really challenging for a lot of new creative leaders because they want to step in, they want to do the work for their team because frankly, they might even be able to do the work better than mm -hmm. their team can. Um, but that's not the job of a leader. The job of the leader isn't to do the work. The job of a leader is to lead the work. And there are a whole lot of things I talk about in the book that go into this mindset, um, but the, that we have to identify places in our work where we're tempted to step in and control, where we're tempted to step in and do the work for our team or to make decisions for our team, or we're not providing our team the space to be able to, to think and to solve problems on their own so that they can develop their own intuition, you know, develop their own ability to do the work. If you fail to, to lead by influence and instead lead by control, your team will eventually grow bored and frustrated and they will never grow beyond your own personal involvement, which means you'll never be able to tackle the work that you're accountable for tackling. So that's kind of the first very important mindset shift that we have to make as a leader. The second one you mentioned is from equals to imbalance. 
And this is also really difficult, I think, for a lot of creative team members because, you know, we all we sort of grow up together and maybe we're working with our peers and then maybe we're promoted into a role where we're leading our peers. And for a lot of leaders, they don't like that transition because all of a sudden now there's a bit of a gap, a bit of a barrier between me and the people that were formerly my peers and my friends. And so as a result, they do things that indicate that they want to be liked, maybe even at the expense of being effective. So what we have to do is we have to recognize that there is an imbalance of power that exists once we get promoted into a a leadership role. And we have to establish a little bit of distance from the team, which means we're not going to be able to do things the way that we've always done them. And we're not going to be able to have the same kinds of relationships we've always had with our former peers. Um, and it, I talked to a handful of people in researching the book who you know, shared examples with me of, you know, I didn't I didn't effectively establish distance early in the days of my promotion into a leadership or a manager role. And as a result, it it led to a lot of hurt feelings. It led to people not really believing I was making objective creative decisions, which is a part of the stability thing that we need to provide. Your team needs to trust that you're making objective decisions, that you're not favoring one person over another because you have a personal relationship with them of some sort. And so you have to make a transition from equals to imbalance, which means you need to recognize that establishing distance is a critical part of your credibility as a leader. So, and again, it's, it's a transition nobody ever tells people about. And it's a transition that if you don't do it, it will get you into significant trouble over the course of time. And then finally the transition from peer to coach, I think is the other one that you mentioned. Uh And, you know, again, this is about, you know, we're sort of, in a place where we're all encouraging one another and we're telling one another what we like about each other. And you know, when, if, if you and I were on a team together, I'm probably not going to come to you, Srini and start pointing out all of the areas where you're letting me down. Right. Instead, I'm going to look for ways to encourage you and we're teammates and we're in this together and we've got each other's back and all of that. But once you transition into a manager role and you've transitioned from a maker to a manager mindset, you have to adopt the role of coach for your team, which means you need to help them identify their strengths, but also identify the areas where there there are deficiencies, maybe things they're trying to do that they really shouldn't be trying to do because it's not really in their strong suit. And we often talk about developing people's weaknesses. The reality is we sometimes don't have the ability to develop their weaknesses in time to deliver to a client. And so we have to be willing to deliver uncomfortable truth to people. We have to be willing to coach them, uh, coach them up in the areas where they're really talented and they have potential to be a superstar. And we need to help them let go of things that maybe they, uh, you know, maybe they're not willing to let go of because other people value those contributions, right? Other people say, well, if you want to be really important, you need to do this. Well, maybe they're not good at this, whatever this is. And you have to, as a leader, you have to be willing to have those difficult conversations with them and coach them up. So you have to transition from a mindset of, I'm encouraging you. You're great. Go. You're wonderful. To a mindset of, hey, there are are some things about you I want to help you let go of so that you can be better at the things that you're really great at. Mm-hmm. You know, it's interesting because I, I think that I, I play the role of both maker and manager as, as you know, the host of Unmistakable Creative. Like, you know, I play the role of maker when it comes to doing interviews, but pretty much everything else, I play the role of manager and, you know, right. like watching artists do, uh, you know, book covers or that kind of stuff. And it, it's interesting. I realized the more that I was able to shift into sort of the manager role, the faster I was able to start executing things that came, you know, that I could think of. 
Yeah, well, and, and there is sort of, there's such a thing as a makeager, right? And and it, it's always hard. Like, I, we have to talk about things in in terms of clean lines only because if you don't, well, there are there are a million yeah buts to everything you say, right? Yeah. Every piece of advice is like, well, yeah, but, yeah, but. Yeah, there are a million yeah buts that we could issue about any anything we're talking about. Mm-hmm. So you have to establish clean lines between maker and manager. But the reality is most of us live in both worlds. I mean, you and I both live in, in, in both of those worlds simultaneously. We're makeagers to some extent, right? Mm-hmm. And there's some things I manage, but there are also some things that I make. You know, when I'm writing a book, I don't, you know, I'm, I don't have a, a team of people writing books for me. You know, like I am actually writing the book and doing the research and doing all those things. Um, and, but when I'm leading a project, you know, when I'm leading a, a like, like a brand design uh, project or something like that, like I'm not doing all the work, right? Something like that. Like I'm actually leading, leading the work. So very, very different things. But yeah, you're right. I mean, I think that we, you know, the, the, the challenge for us is to understand where do we need to be involved and when do we need to be involved in the work versus letting our insecurity pull us into the work more often than we need to be. And the reality is a lot of the places where we get in trouble as leaders is a result of our of our own insecurity. Mm-hmm. It's a result of us feeling like we're not capable, us feeling like we don't have what it takes to, to lead the work. And so we have to get directly involved. And I believe firmly, based upon what I've seen, that your area of greatest insecurity is the place where you have the most potential to do damage to your team. Because whatever you're trying to feed through your leadership, whatever it is, whatever hole you're trying to fill via your leadership role, that's the place where you have the most potential to get your, to pull your team off the rails and to do irreparable damage. So you have to keep an eye on those insecurities and make sure that they're not pulling you off the rails, but then also make sure that you are filling your role as a manager, that your job is to lead the work, not to do the work. And at the same time, you have to make sure that you stay connected enough to the work that you don't lose your credibility, right? Mm. So it, it is a, I mean, leadership, leadership is about being in the middle. <laughs> you know, and this is the thing people don't talk about, Srini, is that people think of leadership as being on top. It's not. I don't care what level of the organization you're at. I don't care if you're a CEO. You're still accountable to the board and you're accountable to the shareholders, right? You're still in the middle. You have a lot more people below you, but you're still in the middle. And when you're managing a team, you're in the middle. So you're managing all the pressure down of make it great. It's got to deliver for our clients. You got to stay in budget. You know, oh, by the way, you have to manage your own career aspirations, but you're also managing all the pressure up. You're managing, you know, when am I going to get my promotion? Why, why aren't you going with my idea? This person and I are having a personal conflict. How are you, how are we going to resolve it? Right? So you have all this pressure coming up and all this pressure coming down and the, and being in the middle is the work of a leader. It's resolving those tensions, the, the pressure down and the pressure up. It's resolving that. That's the role of a leader, which I think in many ways should cause many of us to ask, is that what I want? <laughs> do I, do I really want to be the leader? Mm-hmm. See, I think a lot of people want to be the leader, but not a lot, not a lot of people want to lead. They don't want to do the work of leadership. They just want to be the leader, but that's a very, that doing the work of leadership is a very different thing because it's about being in the middle and dealing with the ambiguity of that pressure up and that pressure down. Yeah. So um, I want to talk about two other parts of this in, in part two of the book in mechanics. And these are two areas that are particularly of, of interest to me because they're, they're so relevant to the way I've kind of managed my own life and my own work. Um, and that is the, the notion of pruning proactively and staying on target. So can you expand on those two concepts and talk about the role that they play both in terms of leading and in terms of getting the actual work done? Yeah. So one of the things that is a critical role of the leader is to shape the culture. And 
the problem is that many of us think of a culture as something to be built. And I think that's a, that's a poor analogy. Instead, I like to think of a culture as something that is grown. It's like a garden. So you have good fruit in the garden. You have good plants that are growing up, but you also have weeds in the garden. If, and if you want to have a garden that stays healthy and produces great fruit over time, you can produce mediocre fruit with weeds in the garden, right? But if you want to produce great fruit in the garden, you have to do two things. You have to fertilize what you want. So fertilize the fruit and you have to prune what you don't want. You have to prune the weeds. Well, you know, we have a lot of weeds growing in our cultures. And so once we've defined what we want, we have to proactively prune the things that we don't want. And there are a couple of places that we can look for this. The first is something I call ghost rules, right? And ghost rules are invisible narratives about what is and what isn't possible, about what is and isn't expected within the culture. So for example, um, well, that person can't talk to that person, right? Or this person can't introduce an idea or great ideas never come from that department. Or um, you know, if you want to get ahead around here, you have to stay until seven o'clock at night because if you don't do that, then you know nobody's ever going to notice you. Or you know, these are sort of ghost rules that develop over time. Nobody expressly stated them. Uh, it doesn't show up in any kind of organizational handbook, but they're just sort of like little invisible rules that have been developed within the organization. And your job as a leader is to identify and to prune those ghost rules as they emerge, the things that are counter to the culture that you want to build. Um, and so that's you know sort of one aspect of, of pruning that's critically important. Another one is um, this phrase, normalization of deviance. And I tell the story about where that phrase came from. Um, it, it resulted from some experiences that NASA had um, with the space shuttle program. But um, essentially what this means is when we tacitly begin to accept and normalize behavior that is unhealthy for our culture. And leaders do this all the time. Why? Because it's inconvenient to have to deal with that unhealthy behavior. It's much easier just to let it go. It doesn't seem like it's bothering anyone. It's totally fine, right? So it could be people being snarky in meetings. It could be people snipping at one another, little conflicts that emerge. It could be turning in work, you know, uh, half a day late, you know, on a regular basis. And you just kind of tacitly accept that stuff. But then over the course of time, it becomes normalized behavior and it begins to eat away at your culture and at your authority as a leader. So um, these are a couple of the things that I talk about in the chapter on pruning proactively, because primarily it's about building a culture that is consistent and a culture that is conducive to great creative work. And staying on target is about helping your team maintain its focus, making sure that you have defined for your team, what are we working on? When are we working on it? And what are we not working on? Some of the things we talked about earlier, right? Um, and part of that is making sure that you're winnowing away, you know, all of the unhealthy, uh, <laughs> all of the unhealthy influences that want to rob us of our attention, rob us of our finite focus. Um, things like, I mean, just as an example, um, why is it that we feel the need to carbon copy 16 people on every email that we send, right? <laughs> Why is it that we seem to feel the need to invite, you know, 15 people to a meeting where really only three people are going to be making the decisions? Well, the reason we do this is because we want to cover our rear as a leader. That's why we do it. But the problem is, even though it seems like it's not really that big of a deal, you're stealing from your team. You're robbing, you're basically, you are wasting their life when you do that. And you're robbing them of their ability to focus 
focus because what's going to happen? Well, they have to have time to ramp up to that meeting. They have to sit in the meeting and they have to have time to ramp down from that meeting. And so a lot of people whose job it is primarily to create for a living, which by the way, requires a lot of ramp up time, a lot of ramp down time and a lot of deep focused work time. People who are accountable for doing that kind of work spend their day playing meeting ping pong, right? They're just bouncing from meeting to meeting to meeting to meeting and they're trying to get their work done in the cracks and crevices. Well, when you do that, you are not serving your team. You're not providing them with the environment they need in order to thrive. So really staying on targets is about making sure that you're protecting your team's attention and that you're keeping them focused on what's important and when it's important and you're limiting the project horizon so they're focused on what is critical now, the critical few things that they need to be tackling now rather than worrying about the hundred things they could possibly be focused on at any given moment. Wow. So um, I want to finish by uh, talking kind of about the implications of all of this for the future of work. I mean, I think there are a lot of questions right now about what is the future of work going to look like, given that we're seeing automation, unlike any other time in history, we're seeing the, the rise of artificial intelligence, you know, things like 3D printing. The one thing that has really become apparent to me is the individual's ability to create at scale like never before. It seems like it, it's just a matter of years away because, you know, I think even when you and I started doing this work, uh, you know, 2009, it took a lot longer to build a website than it does now. And sure. I can only imagine that, that the speed at which we're going to be able to execute is going to you know, increase rapidly. So I'm, I'm curious, just from you know, your research, your perspectives, what are the implications of all of this for the future of work and, and what role does creativity have in all of it? Well, I mean, I think that there, you know, there are a lot of conversations happening about AI and what AI is going to be able to do, what AI isn't going to be able to do. Um, I honestly don't have a uh, looking glass you know, to give me or a sort of a crystal ball to give me insight into what's gonna, what the world's going to be like in five or 10 or, or 15 years. Um, but I do know, I mean, if, you know, I know you and I have both have conversations with Kevin Kelly about um, the implications of AI and where things are going. And we're going to have to get much more comfortable at working with artificial intelligences and and using them as uh, an augmentation of our existing creative skills and decision-making abilities rather than thinking of them as a replacement for. I think we're going to work with specific kinds of intelligence. And so for, for managers, that's going to mean we're going to have better data. We're probably going to have better, um, better information coming at us that will be processed a little better than the information we get right now um, and, and will provide us with better inputs as we're making decisions. Um, there's probably going to be more quantification of people and their productivity and their creativity and whether ideas are landing or not landing and those kinds of things. So we'll have better data available to be able to coach people. So while a lot of people are, I think, in a place where they are sort of decrying the future and they're worried about AI replacing humans and, and all of this, I really kind of think that the first horizon we're going to hit is that we're going to have better information delivered in a more timely way to help us be more human managers because we're going to be able to see things more clearly than we can and when we're partially distracted and trying to pay attention on our own, I think we're going to have better data to go off of to help people be better at what they do. So I think that's frankly, I'm, 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 I'm cautiously optimistic about the next 10 or 15 years because I think we're going to have uh, better information quicker. And if you're able to use that information well, then you're going to reap the career rewards of that. And I think if you uh, if you sort of push it away and you're hesitant to adopt uh, some of this new technology as it emerges, I think that you're going to fall further and further behind mm -hmm. uh, and, and maybe uh, maybe even, you know, uh, be maybe an ir irrecoverable tailspin 
end for you if you're not careful, right? So um, that's that's sort of my, I would encourage any manager to just be paying attention to what's going on with how information is delivered and especially information we couldn't previously quantify, like how do you measure the creative quality of something? Well, I think we're probably going to get better at being able to quantify that, um, however it is that we, we want to quantify. And I'm not saying we're going to squeeze all of the beauty and all the mystery out of art. I think it's quite the opposite. I think that we're going to have a much better sense of where we should be devoting our unique creative potential because we're going to have more of a sense of um, kind of the direction that we should be taking a project. So that that's just my kind of my my two cents. But we'll I don't know. We'll see. What do you think? I'm curious what you think. I have mixed feelings. Um, I, I think that. Uh it, there's a lot of work that I see that is incredibly repetitive. You know, I, I just think I can't help but think of the story a friend told me where he's doing some contract work and there's a guy who does something in Excel. And my friend went and showed him something. He said, this used to take me five hours a week. Now it's going to take me five minutes. Right. And, you know, to think that, you know, and that's the tip of the iceberg. That's with the tools that we already have. So that makes me a little nervous. But at the same time, that to me also says, okay, great. Now we're not going to have somebody do grunt work. They're going to get, you know, I, I think we're going to find that people are going to be much more engaged with their work. Um, right. Because you're no longer going to be able to just do work that is, is something that is repetitive and mundane. Right, right. I, and I agree. And I think I think that's one of the beautiful things about it is that we're going to be freed up from the administrative um, aspects of our work. And instead, we're going to be able to focus on the things we can uniquely do, which I think will benefit everyone. And the other thing you know, Kevin Kelly talks about is that there is art to be made that nobody has even conceived of yet because the kinds of intelligence it would take to create that art hasn't been invented yet. And so once we invent those kinds of intelligence and we begin to use those not as replacements for human intelligence, but as augmentations of human intelligence. Uh, I think we're going to see some amazing things created. And so that's, I think that's very exciting. But the reason I say cautiously optimistic is because, uh, you know, I'm just, I'm concerned about what happens when somebody gets a hold of a computer that can improve itself faster than we can process that it's improving itself, right? <laughs> or, or an intelligence, I should not a computer, but an intelligence, yeah. you know? So, um, yeah, I just think we have to be, we have to be very cautious in how we use this technology. Absolutely. Wow. Um, well, as always, you've packed with this with uh, tons of brilliant insights. So I want to finish with uh, my final question, and it'll be interesting to see how you answer this uh, differently after a few years. What do you think it is that makes somebody or something unmistakable? I believe that the thing that makes somebody unmistakable is the courage to listen to what their inner voice is telling them. Um, I think that we all have those moments in our life where our gut is telling us one thing and maybe our external perception is telling us another thing. And I think often, you know, I believe art, great art is the willingness to make decisions in the face of uncertainty. And I believe that um, those decisions often have to be driven by our gut instinct for what is what is right. I think our, our gut actually speaks more truth to us sometimes than our mind does because of cognitive uh, biases. And so I think what makes somebody unmistakable is the willingness to listen to their gut, even in the face of um, pressure and even in the face of uh, potentially disconfirming information from the outside and uh, you know the willingness to stay true to that. Wow. Awesome. Um, and where can people learn more about you, your work and uh, the new book? Yeah, so I think uh, the best place is probably toddhenry.com. Uh, from there, you can get to the Accidental Creative Podcast. You can get to all my books and anything else that I do. Awesome. And for everybody listening, we will wrap the show with that. 
Thank you for listening to this episode of the Unmistakable Creative Podcast. While you were listening, were there any moments you found fascinating, inspiring, instructive, maybe even heartwarming? Can you think of anyone, a friend or a family member who would appreciate this moment? If so, take a second and share today's episode with that one person, because good ideas and messages are meant to be shared. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High-quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more, with Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Have you ever felt a twinge of worry about AI taking over your job or diluting your creativity? Well, what if you could turn that fear into creative fuel? We've just published an amazing new ebook called The Four Keys to Success in an AI World. And this is more than just a guide. It's a deep exploration into the human skills that AI can't touch, the skills that are essential for standing out and thriving no matter how much technology evolved. We're talking about real differentiators here like creativity, emotional intelligence, critical thinking, and much more. Inside, you'll find actionable insights and strategies to develop these skills, whether you're a creative person, a business person, or just simply someone who loves personal development. This isn't a story about tech taking over. It's a story of human creativity thriving alongside AI. Picture this, AI as your creative co-pilot, not just as a tool, but a collaborator that enhances your unique human skills. The Four Keys ebook will show you exactly how to do that and view AI in a new way that empowers you instead of overshadows you. Transform your creative potential today. Head over to unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys. Use the number four, K-E-Y-S. That's unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys and download your free copy.